Um, if uh, you have been with us, we have been journeying through the Advent season uh, with a series called Portraits of Advent. We've been looking at the four names of Jesus prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 9-6, that he would be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and today, as you've already heard multiple times, our Prince of Peace, the one who comes to bring us peace. And so as part of that, I'm going to invite the Strubik family to come, and they are going to uh, both read the Prince of Peace over us as well as uh, light the Advent candles. So would you give them uh, your attention as they come? But don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now, because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we are now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. Isaiah completes this quartet of Jesus' names with... Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. This is the only title that implies ruling. He is the prince. However, although his rule is complete... It is not an iron fist kind of rule. Rather, it is a reign of complete peace. The implication of his title is that under his rule, within his kingdom, there is peace. However, outside of his rule, outside of his kingdom, there is no peace at all. Break it down. The fourth candle reminds us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. <laughs> Good job, Betty. He has come to establish a very real kingdom, and we are invited into it. Under his rule, we lose our rights, but we gain true and lasting peace. As citizens of a democracy, we want to vote. We cling to our rights. Our rights as human beings are being traded in gladly for the right to be called children of God. What a glorious savior Jesus is, that he orchestrates such a mar marvelous plan, <clears throat> excuse me, and uses his incredible power to carry it out because of his deep love for us, so that we can live in complete peace. Let's pray. What can we say, Lord Jesus? You are the ruler and we are your children. And what joy we have to be ruled by you. Amen. Amen. Well done. Well done. Thank you guys so much. So I don't know if you feel it, but as we come into the holiday season, there's this paradox 
that's in the world around us. It's a paradox that I feel because we all together are entering into Christmas. We all recognize this is the Christmas season. Whether or not you celebrate Christmas specifically, everybody takes the day off tomorrow, right? Everybody's good with that. We all recognize that it's Christmas. And there's deep, deep divisions in the midst of this one thing that we do together. Sociologists tell us that we are more divided now as a country than at any time since the Civil War. That we, we can't even agree upon how we should wish Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to one another. Right? We, we disagree on everything. We are deeply divided as a society. But the divisions aren't just there. They actually get into the interpersonal. There are a variety of different surveys out there. But statistics show that in the last two to three decades, our connection has dropped dramatically to the point where um, less than three decades passed, um, we now would say that almost 20% of us say we have zero or one close friend. That's three times higher than it was three decades ago. We're literally losing friends by the decade. Statistica, who did uh, one such study on relationships, described American relationships as a social recession. We are losing connection with one another. But it's not just broad society and interpersonal relationships. The, the statistics on depression and anxiety interpersonally are through the roof. People feel a weight and a dread of what's coming. When people are asked questions like, what do you think about the future that's coming? They use words like doom. They use words like fear. Whether it's uh, the right or the left being in power or whether it's the economy that's about to crash or whether it's just an impending sense that everything's kind of built on stilts and it's all about to fall down. There's this sense of fear in the world around us. Merry Christmas. Everybody happy? You feeling good? <laughs> feeling good? Uh, so, so what do we do with that? What, what do we do with the fact this is the, this is the world we live in? This is the society that we're in. This is the air that we breathe. And Jesus says that he is coming as the prince of peace. What does it mean for Jesus to bring peace into a world that's that broken? What's it mean for Jesus to bring peace to a, a society that's broken, to uh, interpersonal relationships that are broken, to us as broken people? What does it mean for Jesus to be the prince of peace? Well, to answer that question, I want us to walk through at a high level Ephesians chapter 2. It's a rich chapter with lots of stuff in it, and we're just going to kind of skim the surface. But I think as we skim the surface, you're going to see some of the contours of what it means that Jesus in, is indeed the Prince of Peace. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You're welcome to grab that. And if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, if you don't have one at all, um, that's your Christmas present. Merry Christmas. Take that one home. Um, we're really thrilled for you to have a copy of the Bible. We're glad to replace that, and so uh, feel free to take that with you. Theologians are pretty well united that the letter to the Romans is Paul's greatest letter. The Apostle Paul wrote a, a bunch of the letters in the Old Testament, and Romans is universally seen as the greatest of them. But Ephesians is often seen as the most intentional of them, and here's what I mean. In six chapters, 
Paul, with precision, laid out a beautifully crafted letter that follows a precise pattern. For instance, the first three chapters of Ephesians are just descriptions of what is. There is literally not one command that you and I need to follow in those first three chapters. They're just uh, what we receive. It's just true about you. Is if, if you read those first three chapters, all Paul's saying is this is true about you. The, the second three chapters are all commands. It's Paul saying, if this is true about you, here's the way you should live. Well, Ephesians 2, obviously, is right in the middle of those first three chapters. And so there's a description here that Paul's giving us of what our life should be like in Christ or what, what is true of us in Christ. But in addition to that, what, what Paul does in Ephesians 2 is draw this parallel between the first half of Ephesians 2 and the second half of Ephesians 2, and he creates this parallel structure. And so that's what I want us to look at today. What Paul means when he invites us personally into peace, what Paul means when he invites us communally into peace, and what the message of peace is for us. So personal peace, communal peace, and the message of peace that we've been given. If that doesn't make sense to you, hopefully it will in just a minute. Let me read for you, um, I'm going to start in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul starts out by painting a picture for us, and it's a pretty bleak picture. What he says is, you were dead, not you were broken and messed up, you were struggling, you had a little bit of problem, you had to like deal with some things, you had some work to do in order to get yourself right before God. No, he says, you were, you and I were dead. And he says that not just about a specific group of people, he says, this is, this is among whom we all once lived, all of us, every single one of us is dead. Now, I don't know how much experience you have with dead people, but they don't do a whole lot right? Um, like dead people don't, don't engage much. And that's, that's the point. That's what Paul is saying. He said, like, it doesn't make any sense for you to think that I need to do some work to get myself right with God, or I need to, uh, I, I need to position myself in order to be right with God, or I, I need to uh, earn the, the, the grace that's been given to me, because you can't because you were dead, right? You can't, can't do anything about it. There was a story of a pastor who was trying to explain to his congregation what it would be like to get to the end of your life and kind of live with the end in mind. And so he was talking to them about when you're at your funeral, what do you hope people are going to say about you? And he saw these three guys in the front of the church, and he thought, well, this is a great opportunity for audience interaction. And so he says, Bill, at no, I pointed at Bill and said Bill, but I'm not, no, I'm not talking to you. It was just, it, it was just happenstance. Anyway, he said, Bill, he said, um, when, when, you're at the, when, when your funeral is happening, you're lying in the casket, what do you hope that people will say about you? And Bill kind of quickly wanted to respond well, and so he said, well, I, I hope people would say that I'm generous, that I've given time and money and energy to people who needed it, that I was a generous person. He said, oh, that's great, Bill. 
Uh, Fred, what about you? What, what do you? what do you hope people will say about you? And Fred, not wanting to be outdone by Bill, said, well, I hope that they would say I'm a person of love, that I've loved well, I've loved my family well, and I've loved the people around me well. And he says, okay, John, how about you? When you're at the end of your life and people are looking at you in the casket, what do you hope that they say? And he says, well, I hope they'd say, look, he's moving. <laughs> now, at the risk of over-explaining the joke, the point is you, you don't move when you're dead, right? That's the whole point. Like, it, when you're dead, you're dead. There is no hope. There is no, no movement that you can make towards God or anything else. Paul says, all of us are dead. We can't do anything about it. But then in verse four, there's this phrase. It's a phrase that Paul uses throughout his letters at various times, and it always brings hope into hopeless situations. Listen to what he says. But God, that's it. But God, in the midst of your death, in the midst of your hopelessness, in the midst of your inability to do anything on your own, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what he says is, you were dead, you had nothing that you could do about it, and God stepped into your deadness and he brought you life through this thing called grace. Grace just means unmerited favor, uh, which makes sense because if you're dead, there's nothing that you could do to merit the favor, right? Like there's this goodness that's coming to you from God that you didn't earn, that you didn't generate, that you didn't position yourself for. You were dead and he showed up in grace to bring you life. The, the way that he says it in verse eight, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We were all dead, and God stepped in by grace, giving us a gift that we didn't earn, that we didn't position ourselves for, that we simply receive. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Practice Resurrection, makes this statement. Grace originates in an act of God that is absolutely without precedent. The generous, sacrificial, self-giving of Jesus that makes it possible for us to participate in resurrection ministry. It is not what we do, it is what we participate in. But we cannot participate apart from entering into and giving ourselves up to what is previous to us, the presence and action of God in Christ that is other than us. What Peterson's saying is, there's nothing that we can do to generate this. We simply enter in to what has already been done on our behalf. The point is entering in. That, that's it. We are dead, and we simply receive what's been given to us in Christ. Now, at a personal level, that is profound. But that's not all Paul's saying. I, I, I want to skip ahead to verse 11. We're going to come back to 10 in just a minute. But in verse 11, Paul now is going to write a communal parallel. And you're going to see the, the paralleling happen. So um, he began by saying, you were dead in your trespasses. You had no ability to do anything on your own. You individually. Now listen, in verse 11, he says this. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you, this you plural, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So just as hopeless as dead individually, now he's saying communally, we were equally as dead, alienated from God, separated from God. And again, there is literally nothing that we could do about it. There's, there's no action that we can take that we could pursue, that we could step into to remove that alienation from God. We as a community, we as a people, those who are separated from God, have no ability in and of ourselves to do anything about it. But now in Christ. So he parallels again. But God, in verse 4, in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says, Jesus becomes the peace that unites us. So how do we engage the Prince of Peace? Well, Jesus himself is our peace. So, so let me spell it out really clearly. We can't pursue peace or step into peace or create peace apart from the fact that Jesus himself is our peace. Lasting, real peace is him. It's not anything that we do. Now, that's, that's tough for us to get our head around, and he's going to explain it a little bit more. Let me, let me read a, another verse for you. He says, he removed in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, broken down the, uh, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by a, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All right, let me try to unpack this. Um, Paul is saying, Jesus is our peace. How is he our peace? Well, what he does is he steps into our divided communal society, into our brokenness, the same way that he does to us individually, and he makes us one new man in Christ. Now, in Greek, Paul's writing in Greek, he has a variety of different words that he can use that would be translated new in English. The typical kind of intuitive word that he would use, the most popular and the kind of the most often used word for new, is the Greek word neos. And neos would be the typical new thing. It would be like if you walked out into the parking lot and you had a new car, that would be a neos car. Or if you would uh, go home and under the tree is a brand new iPhone, that would be a Neos iPhone. Or uh, if you got a new house, that would be a, a Neos house. It's a, it's a brand new thing that is, it would be really exciting. Like I, I'm, I'm all for Neos things. In fact, if you want to get me a Neos iPhone, I'm open to that. You, I, will, I will receive your gifts. It's totally fine. No problem. So, so like those are good things, right? Neos is, is good, but that's not the word that Paul uses. Instead of using the word neos, he uses the word kainos. Now, kainos is a whole different kind of new. Kainos means new in essence, like never before been seen before, a, a, a brand new, unique kind of thing. 
It, it's not a, a new addition of like there's been cars and now you got a new car or there's been houses and you got a new house. But this is like a, a new, never been thought of before thing. So, so I'm going to give you an illustration of what Kainos is. Uh, it's going to be very controversial, so you're going to have to stick with me. Um, I'm going to make a statement. Some of you are going to agree strongly. Some of you are going to disagree strongly. And it's okay. You can either be with me or you can be wrong. It's no problem. Here's the statement. I really love mayonnaise. Now, some of you are into mayonnaise. Some of you are opposed to mayonnaise. It's okay that you're wrong. But mayonnaise, mayonnaise is uh, this glorious thing, right? It's just this like creamy, tangy goodness that if you just like layer it onto anything, it makes it better. It's glorious. But mayonnaise, mayonnaise is weird because mayonnaise is made up of these two different elements that do not go together. So if you're going to make mayonnaise, you're going to take oil, you're going to take vinegar. I said water in the first service because it's watery, but it's oil and vinegar go together. And, and when they go together, they, they go together like oil and water, right? Like they, they don't go together. Like no matter how much you work to push them together, no matter how much you work to blend them together, what's going to happen is you're going to have these little pockets of vinegar floating around in the oil because the oil and the vinegar will not mix unless you put the egg in it. And once you put the egg in, it's this glorious thing that starts to happen because the oil and the vinegar are, are brought together by the egg, which is the emulsifier. I don't know what that means. I read that word. It's really impressive. But, but what happens is, is that once the egg goes in, it's no longer oil and vinegar. Now it's mayonnaise. It's this, like this glorious new thing came out of it. Because when you, when you like take the top off the jar of mayonnaise, you don't think, oh, that's an oil and vinegar mixture. No, it's a totally different thing. It doesn't remind you of oil. It doesn't remind you of vinegar. It reminds you of the glory of mayonnaise. That's what you get, right? In the very same way, what Paul's saying is when the, when the Jews and the Gentiles are brought together, it's not Jew plus Gentile plus Jesus equals a slightly better society than it was before. It's not Jews plus Jesus, Gentiles plus Jesus, equal people who now have something in common for the first time. What he's not saying is our, our community is identified by the fact that we can now get along. What he's saying is Jesus is creating something brand new, totally different, never been seen before. That when we come together, Something happens in the community of the saints that doesn't happen anywhere else because Jesus is the emulsifier. Jesus is bringing together the oil and the vinegar and he's making the creamy goodness that is the church, right? This is us. Some of you are like, I don't want to be called mayonnaise. That's because you're wrong. It's glorious. It's glorious. So, so, so listen, uh, if... If there's this individual, personal peace that's brought to us by the God who shows up and brings life out of our death, there is equally this communal peace that comes because Jesus himself is our peace and he shows up and brings unity and a new kind of person out of the broken people that we were. And then he invites us in. Listen as I read verse 10. This is now Paul talking individually about our individual peace. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
That word workmanship is the Greek word poema, and it means masterpiece, a, a work of art, a beautiful work of art. If you take all of the paintings that have been done, and if you take all of the songs that have been created, they pale in comparison to what God says you are. You are his masterpiece, exactly like you are, created for his perfect purposes. You are his masterpiece, and he has already laid out good things for you to walk into. He's prepared the, the, the world around you for your specific skill set, your specific passions. He's laid it all out before you that you would walk into those things. Now, that's the individual, but now look down at the corporate. So skip down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What Paul says is this new man that's being created that, that it is in the same way that you individually are the masterpiece of God, we are the temple of God. And the temple in the ancient Near East was unique among all architectural structures. It was not just massive and beautiful and intentionally laid out. It was all of that. But it was also shot through with the divine. It was the dwelling place of God. This is what Paul's saying. In the same way that he's created you as a masterpiece and already has good things for you to walk into, he created us, a new man, a, a brand new society that's never been seen before, so that we would be embodied by the Spirit of God. That he would come and live in us, dwell in us. God has made us, his society, his home, his space to dwell so that when we live in the midst of a broken society, our message is not, can't we all just get along? Our message is not, well, at least we have Jesus in common so we can argue about everything else. Our message is, he himself is our peace, and he dwells here with us. That when you come to the community of faith, the intent is that you would not encounter our individual goodness, but you would encounter the glory of God. That the Prince of Peace dwells within his church. Tonight we'll look at the famous Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And if you're familiar with the words of the angel, there's a declaration that the angel made. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth... Peace among those whom his, who, on whom his favor rests. Peace. Peace that comes because of Jesus. Not a peace that we generate, not a peace that we earn, but as Peterson said, a peace that we enter into, that we just receive. That's the invitation. We were dead but it's through his death that we have life. We were separated and broken, but it's in his brokenness that we're made whole. Amen, amen. And now, people of God, listen to these words penned by John, the disciple, the apostle, 
as he meditated on the event that we celebrate today and tomorrow. Listen to the way that he described it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then 30 years later, Jesus, the one of whom John was writing, said this, you are the light of the world. So don't hide that light, but shine that light brightly into the world around you. And so friends, receiving peace from the Prince of Peace, light from the one who himself is light, take his grace and his peace and his goodness with you and allow him to shine through you into the world around you. Have a Merry Christmas. Go in grace and in peace, and I'll see you tonight. Amen. Thanks for being here. I first wanted to start you off with a verse, um, Psalm 4, 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, have me dwell in safety. Um, This is basically the subject of my painting. Um, I think... That verse really just lies within it, uh, like with the baby sleeping on Jesus, laying, laying down on uh, Jesus and sleeping, and everyone taking comfort in his embrace, um, and representing security with his hands wrapped around all the generations and people, and yeah. I also wanted to include an older gentleman in there um, to represent the, you know, uh, well, here, I'll start you off with the story. When I was little, I, we had a painting of Jesus and children in our, room, in our bedroom, and I always thought, okay, so, you know, kids, Jesus loves kids, um, okay. And um, he sees us all as his children. And usually this is represented with children. Um, And I think it's rarely uh, seen through older people that they are also his children. Just because they're older doesn't mean they're not his children. Um, And I really wanted to include that. The whole way I came up with this is that I, for the past few weeks, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what I was going to paint because I wanted it to be original. I didn't want it to be like the painting that I had in my room growing up because I thought, wow, a million paintings must be like that, which a million paintings are like that. But I talked to Pastor Brian about it, and he said, well, the painting is what you think Prince of Peace means, like what comes to mind when you think of Prince of Peace. So I painted what what comes to mind when I think of Prince of Peace. Um, I really wanted to connect with everyone here, but I talked to him once again, and 
he said that it was about what I thought about Prince of Peace. And yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Anna. Great job. I'm going to invite Avery Clancy to come up as well. And so the second piece is uh, one that Avery created. And so I'm just going to ask her a couple questions about it. Um, Avery, how old are you? I'm 12 years old. You're 12 years old. I couldn't paint that now at 48. So that's wonderful. That's uh, really amazing. So, so tell me a little bit when, uh, when you were asked to create this, what kind of immediately came to your mind? When you thought of Prince of Peace, what, how did this piece come out? When I thought of peace, I thought of like the colors of gold and blue because that just represents peace. Represents peace to you. Yes. So you use those colors to bring it together. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. great. And what was the process like as you were creating it? Was, it? was it a hard thing to try to create in your mind or did it come out pretty easily once you started moving? I think it came out pretty easily, but some of the stuff that I painted was hard. Yeah, yeah, that bird is amazing. I don't know how you did that, but yeah, that's unbelievable. Um, so as you talk to us, and this is a Sunday where we all remember that Jesus came as our Prince of Peace. Is there anything about peace that really stuck out to you as you were creating this painting or anything that you'd want to communicate to us? Um, just that peace is like really calmness. And when I think of peace, it means like a dove. And a dove, yeah. yeah, it's just a, a calm sense yeah. that Jesus brings calm to us and beauty. Yeah, that's great. And Avery, thank you so much yeah. for painting this. I'm going to invite Anna to come up as well, and I'm going to ask us to pray over both of them as they, um, in an emerging generation, are using their gifts for the glory of God. And we're going to pray that God would continue to do that. Yeah, thank you. So Jesus, thank you for Anna and Avery and for the generation that they represent. Uh, so many gifts and abilities and uh, desires and passions. And God, I pray that you would help those things to be fanned into flame. That rather than restricted, they would be, um, they, they, they would flow, they would... Uh, uh, they, they would generate new and exciting ways for us to engage the beauty of who you are. And so, God, we thank you for these pieces of art, and we thank you for the way that they represent peace to us. And I pray your blessing on Anna and Avery as they continue to take these gifts that you've given to them and use them for your glory. God, would you continue to establish the work of their hands? We're so grateful for um, many different vehicles that we can use to ascribe glory to your name for who you are and how good you are to us. And so God bless them and bless us as we continue to walk in these ways in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I am filled with a little with joy and a little trepidation to bring this, this song to you this morning. I was tasked with Prince of Peace, and I'll just give you a little blurb here before we start. Um, from Ephesians 2. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. As I was tasked with writing about Jesus as our Prince of Peace, immediately my mind stayed on that verse 14. He himself is our peace. Capturing every demonstration of Jesus as the Prince of Peace is an impossible task, but as I began to think it through, I realized I tended to gravitate toward organizing my thoughts into the same pattern that we're asked as worship leaders to try to follow as we craft our worship sets. We focus on the creation, the fall of man, redemption, and restoration. Thus, the verses of this song move in a progression from Christ existing in glory, perfection, to our fall in the garden, creating that divide and break in our shalom. Then to Christ as our redemption, not only spiritually, but also in the day-to-day storms of life. And ultimately, as the king who is coming again to reign on his throne. Because the common use of the word peace tends to take on simplified definitions of things like the absence of conflict or calm or simply getting along. In the course, I intended to use the Hebrew word shalom, which is difficult to translate in English or many languages, but means wholeness in all things, completeness, flourishing, delight, everything as it should be before God, perfection. So in the chorus, I recognize that Christ, as our Prince of Peace, our great shalom, whose kingdom is both here and yet to come, is making and will make all things right. Through our darkness and even our busy night, which was a nod to most Americans' reality. <clears throat> Sorry, I can't read. I'm crying. Which was a nod to most Americans' reality, much like those in Bethlehem, who can miss his presence right among us. So this Christmas season, and always, my prayer is that you will know. That you will know the Prince of Peace first as the one who has made peace with God on your behalf. As your Savior. And as the one through whom you can know shalom, flourishing, delight, perfection, peace in your day-to-day. Here's Prince of Peace.